Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. Our guest tonight began his career in the automotive industry in the early 1960s, when he started importing small cars from Europe and Japan to sell in the United States. In 1968, he founded Subaru of America and helped introduce the Subaru 360 to the American market. In the 1970s, Malcolm Bricklin turned his attention to creating his own sports car, the Bricklin SV1. The car featured gullwing doors and a fiberglass body and was powered by a V8 engine. 2,854 units were sold before production ceased in 1975. Today, Malcolm remains an active and influential figure in the automotive industry, continuing to explore new ideas and business ventures in the pursuit of his entrepreneurial vision. And he's here tonight to explain to us just exactly what he's been up to. Thanks, Don. And with that, Malcolm, welcome to Break Fix. Uh, well, thank you very much. So, Malcolm, like all good Break Fix stories, everybody has an origin. So let's talk about how you got into this whole automotive industry growing up in Philly. I mean, personally, I can't think of too many automotive titans that have their origin stories starting in Pennsylvania other than Lee Iacocca. So what sparked your interest in cars and what was the path or paths you took to get out of Pennsylvania? Here's the story. Once upon a time... <laughs> I decided to move my family from Orlando, Florida, where my wife and my first three kids, a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old, decided we're moving to Philadelphia, where I was born and lived till I was 10 years old, but I had relatives there. I don't know why I decided. I said, let's do it. Now, my wife at the time was absolutely not interested on getting on an airplane. And we happened to have a Corvette with a hatchback. So picture three kids in the back of the thing, and you haul it. And of course, they talk with all the furniture is coming behind it. I traveled from Orlando, Florida to Philadelphia in a Corvette with my wife and three kids, <laughs> three little kids. All right. How fun is that? So now we're in Philadelphia. And one of the people I get introduced to is a man by the name of David Rosen, who owns coin operated machines, cigarette machines, jute boxes, you name it, that kind of stuff. He was old, to me, older man. I was in my early 20s. And he, in the worst way, wanted me to do And I was not interested. But I used to come by and have some coffee and we talk about stuff. And one day he said, I got something and I think you'll be interested in it. What is that? It's a Cinebox machine. What's a Cinebox machine? What it is is a big thing that looks like an egg, painted red on the back on the shell part, and the front has a television set, and it's a jukebox with a television set. So now it's MTV before MTV. And we go to Turin, where we meet the Innocente Corporation. The Innocente Corporation, big equipment, heavy presses, almost every car company had one, or two or 10 or 50. And they also did Morris Minor with their license from England. And they did uh, Lombretta motor scooters. And they were building this Cinebox machine, which they thought was going to be a big deal. Everybody who saw it thought it was a big deal. It was one little flaw, but we didn't figure it out yet. We ordered a dozen. And they come. And then we realized, we don't have film. This is not MTV. We don't have a platform to get any film. And without film, we don't got a jukebox that shows film. So I went off to Hollywood to go get somebody to start paying attention. What a good idea. This is going to be everywhere. Well, they didn't think so. Because nobody was going to give us a hit team of any musicians that are going to do it. And I got 12. That's my distribution, 12. 
And I'm never going to get past 12 unless I get somebody to do something. And it's got to be more than one because you get bored pretty fast. The only solution to that was my guy who had all these pieces of equipment also had a lot of R-rated film, which of course they like seeing in bars. And I like seeing them too. I just didn't feel like being in the business. So I bowed out. But before I did, I got rid of the 12 with a company called Food Fair. That was a food store that was popular in at least the Philadelphia and New York area. And I convinced him they ought to put these machines on top of the checkout counter, have the people who are selling your products, put their commercials in there, pay them whatever the hell they can get from them. And when people are waiting in line, they may see something they like and they go get it. That's what point of sale advertising. So I got rid of my 12 and they seemed to like what they had, but that was the end of that program. Now, I am sitting home on a Sunday, having a Sunday breakfast with my three kids and my wife, eating a lox and bagel, as a matter of fact, and I get a call, and it's from Innocente Corporation. And in medium English, they tell me they want me to get on a plane tomorrow and come to Milan. And don't tell anybody. They'll pick me up at the plane. I won't be going through customs. I think that was before James Bond, but it for sure as hell felt like a James Bond moment. I couldn't wait. I don't know why I'm going. I have no idea why the hell they called me and why they're going to all this secrecy, but I couldn't wait. So I get on a plane and they pick me up and we go someplace and there's a board of directors in a gorgeous room. And I'm going, what in the heck could this possibly be? And they say to me, we have a problem. Okay, what's your problem? We manufactured a better motor scooter. It was very popular along with Vespa in the United States because of the movie and all sorts of yeah. But then mopeds came out and mopeds are now selling and you forget about scooters. They're not happening in the United States. We have 25,000 of them sitting in Long Island. Financially, it's no big deal. I mean, you're talking about scooters sold for a couple hundred dollars back then. They said, that's not a worry. But for some reason, it has gotten out and it's extremely embarrassing for us and the board. And it doesn't matter what it takes. We got to get rid of them and we want you to do it. <laughs> and I said, well, you just picked the worst guy in the universe to go do that because I never had one. My parents wouldn't let me have one. I couldn't have a motorbike. And you're telling me I should go help you sell the damn thing? I have zero knowledge, except I wanted one. That's it. That's as far as I go. Well, we have a problem. We don't know anybody else we can ask. I said, well, I'm telling you, you're asking the wrong guy. I would love to do it for you. I just don't know where I would even start. Would you do us a favor? Would you go back and go look at the place? We have two guys working there. Would you tell us what you recommend? Oh, great. So I go out to Long Island. I meet two people who are nice gentlemen from Italy and speak broken English. I mean, they're having a good time, but they're not selling anything because if you want one, you got to call them up and beg them just about if you can find them at all. So I go back to Italy. I said, I have no other suggestion, but you'd be better off with nobody because it's not the way you sell vehicles in the United States when nobody wants them. I said, it's more of a hard sell, and I, I wouldn't even know where to start, to tell you the truth. And if there's anything I can do for you, I'll be very happy to do it for you. No, 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 you can't leave. Make us any kind of deal at all. I'm thinking, what can I say that would let them know it would be stupid for them to pursue me? Not that I didn't want to do it. I just didn't have the slightest idea. So I said, okay, I want $5,000 a week, and I want an office in New York for a one-year contract, no matter what happens. Okay. <laughs> I'm going, do you understand? I'm going to go to New York every day. We have an office in New York and we have a secretary. So you can have the secretary in the office. Great. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read papers and then I'm going to go to lunch. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to figure out, I wonder what I would do if, I, if these were mine. And I'm telling you, I don't have the slightest idea now. Be clear. Okay, great. So I go out and I buy myself a used rolls for about six or 7000 New ones cost about twenty nine thirty because I bought one for that price off the showroom for 
And I got myself a driver. And every morning in Philadelphia, I'd come down in my pajamas with a pillow and my suit and tie and go to sleep in the back of the rolls. When they got at the end of the freeway, the New Jersey freeway, I would, they would pull into a gas station. I would go and put my suit and tie, go to the Time and Life building. That's where he would park. Hello, Mr. Brooklyn. Now I was living my novels that I used to read. You'd come into a big building in New York and the guy would know who you are. I go upstairs to the office. A very nice Italian young lady is my secretary. And I read all the papers. Now it's time for lunch. Where am I going to go to lunch? 21 is a little more than I want to do stuffy park just because. But right next door is a place called Twitch Shores. And Twitch Shores had a table in their restaurant, a round table. And anybody could sit at that round table. But when you sat there, you sat there because you wanted to talk to other people. People like Jeremy General Motors would get how the real man thinks about things. It was a good place for people to be very comfortable to ask people of different experiences, answers, questions, or just talk to. It was a very cool place in that regard. Well, I sat next to a guy that had an office across the street from the office we were at Time and Life Building because his customer was across the street next to me, J.C. Penney's. He sold furniture. He represented a North Carolina furniture place. And he sat next to me. And this guy was a police groupie. He loved the badge. He loved talking. He knew everybody in the police force. He just loved everything about being a policeman or helping them or being involved with them or being able to talk to them. And after about two weeks, after we talked about crap, he said, give me three librettos. I said, great. What for? He said, I'm giving them to the New York Police Department. They're going to use it for their meter maids. Okay. I guess for the meter maids, it's not a bad idea, but I wasn't sure. But anyhow, it didn't matter. So we gave him three. And one week later, he comes in with a letter that says, we have come to the conclusion that this replaces five meter maids. But rather than fire anybody, we're going to be moving them up, those that are not going to be meter maids any longer, and let them start to become more police women. And we're very excited at everything, and we want a thousand. <laughs> so I work out a commission. I call in and I say, listen, we just sold a thousand. I'm going to have to pay the man 5% of the whatever the bill is for that. Is that okay? Yeah, okay, okay. And we're going to be able to ship it tomorrow. <laughs> Who do? And I tell them, oh, they're all very excited. Okay, well, I just sold a thousand. Things go along. A week goes by. Now, remember, this guy's excited. He's making money and he's dealing with the police. He is the happiest human being ever happened. The next thing I get is I need uh, three more scooters. What for? Well, at those times, Central Park was not a safe place to be in, day or night. A lot of little petty robberies. Running after people on this terrain was not the coolest thing ever happened. And the truth of the matter is, a small wheel vehicle was not the ideal choice. It should have been a bigger wheel if you're going to be running over these rocks and all the other crap. Nobody asked them. This guy is out selling all the time because now he had an inn. They just bought a thousand things and he's getting excited about making money. So we give him three. And about a week later, there's an article in the paper how the scooter patrol has made a portion of Central Park safe. And the police department is buying a thousand. That's 2,000 we have just sold, and we're getting credit for cleaning up Central Park and increasing the people who are getting kicked up in their jobs because of the scooter patrol. So everybody is about as happy as can be. <laughs> I'm not doing anything but having lunch and reading my papers. Everything is going again pretty good. Now, I sold 2,000, but enough is enough. This is not going to happen in every city in America. They may want two or three, and that's a long run to get rid of another 23 other thousand of these things. And I got to get rid of them because I don't want to have to think about this anymore. And I'm realizing this is how I'm going to sell it. I'm just going to come to this round table and talk to this nice guy. And he's going to figure it out because he just couldn't make you happier.
And then he comes back to me and says, give me 15,000. Okay, what do you want it for? We're running an ad in the Police Gazette. And both people in charge of the park and in charge of the meter maids are going to allow them to put their names on it and their phone numbers. And you, the police department can call them up and they'll tell them what happened. And we sell out all the them brothers. Now I got about, you know, eight, nine months to go. I got nothing to do. But I'm liking <laughs> what I'm doing. So I'm going to keep doing it. But I start reading specifically what's going on in the scooter world. And I find something is starting to happen called rental scooters for $15 an hour. $15 an hour to rent a scooter that costs you maybe $300. That's unbelievable. So I go and I check them out. I start traveling around a little. And I come to the interesting conclusion that the fallacy in what's happening is nobody can get insurance. So what happens when you're now renting a scooter that nobody's been on, that has to have a shift while you balance, is probably the most dangerous thing you can probably rent for $15 an hour because you're going to get in an accident or you're going to drop it on you or something's going to happen because you got to do too many new things. And where are you going? You're going out in the street. And that's what happened. They rent them like crazy and, you know, making money. And then somebody would get hurt and that goes down because they didn't have insurance. So I went, hmm, isn't this interesting? So I went out and I went to State Farm and I made a deal that I would pay them a dollar an hour for every rental if I decided to get into the scooter rental business. So now I had insurance and now I had to find a scooter. No more umbrellas. <laughs> That's over. They sold their factory. There's no more in there. I got to find a scooter. And I'm reading my paper. And in the Wall Street Journal, it was a little thing about a guy in Boston who has 450 rabbit motor scooters that are on rental. But he needs a $75,000 guarantee. The story was he was overdue to pay a $75,000 loan to New England Merchants Bank that was an SBA loan that they guaranteed, but is now due and he didn't pay it off. So I fly to go see him. And his story is he makes a fortune renting the scooters out because they have an automatic transmission. Oh my God, I have insurance and an automatic transmission. He rents them out, but now come fall or winter, you got to put them in storage. It ain't so good renting those things out in the snow and the ice and the other crap. So one, he has to pay for it instead of an income coming in. He's the distributor for the United States. So he has parts, he has to take care of and they're warehousing. And he has a small airplane that he loves more than anything. I say, okay, let's go to the bank. We go to the bank. And I say, listen, I'm willing to make a deal. I'll guarantee the 75000 If it's not paid off in what we're going to do, then I'll personally pay it off. I tell him he can keep the airplane. And he keep the 450 scooters. So I said, all I want is the new inventory you have. And all I want is the parts, which I'll take care of. And I'll guarantee the loan. And he was a happy camper. Oh, and one other little condition. The contract you have to bring them into the United States has to be assigned to my company. Call me when you got that. Bank called me. We got it. And I come in and sign the note and I proceed to put together a little package to sell a dozen of these things to gas stations because they have the gas to put in it. They have the people to fix it. They have the location to rent it from. It. None of that do they think cost them any money. So it's all profit as far as I'm concerned. And there were a lot of people who owned their place so they could borrow against the place. And it was an instant cash. And oh, by the way, we got insurance. They don't have to close in case you got an accident. So we had a couple hundred of the thing and I sold them out in about a week. Now I need a whole bunch. I find out the address and I buy a telex machine and I telex the Fuji. Things are really good here. I want to come over and talk about buying your whole supply of scooters. And I like to show up and they tell me, excuse me, who am I? Didn't they know that they are not building these scooters any longer? They sold it to Israel. I go call up the bank and say, excuse me, I have a small problem here. Oh, yeah, we knew all about it, but we figured there wouldn't be a problem. You could talk them into anything. Now, let me go find out what I can talk them into is what I got. So I got myself a ticket. I said, I'm coming over because we have a small problem here. 
I was told we have a contract. So now they're on the defensive right away because, oh my God, the United States, this is 1967. Everybody was cautious. The United States was a big, scary place to be from. So now I came over and I just had all my presentation, why I can tell everything, whatever deal you make, I'll pay for it. I'm telling you, everything you make, I can buy. I'll give you that extra credit for it. And they then took me in their style to show me everything they build all over Japan. They build planes and they build cars. I was getting a little uncomfortable here, but they were so nice. Now they were being nice because first of all, they thought I came from Mars. I had sideburns down to here. I had Peter Max ties and double-breasted suits. And I'm 20-some years old. The youngest guy there is 50-something. And they're wearing gray and gray and gray. And here I come waltzing in there with that and that and I'm buy everything with my waving my hands around. They show me everything and I see the bigger car and I see the little car and I thought prices 640 bucks and it sticks my head. Boy, I'm sure I could sell that, but I didn't want that. I wanted the bigger car. Now this is the only two other cars with Toyota and Datsun out there and They'd come back. And the quality here now was, at this moment, superlative. You could smell it. It looked so, everything they were doing. So I think I've convinced them to open the factory because they shake their head a lot. So I forgot. I didn't know that I saw men we understand. Not, yes, you got a deal. So I go back, happy as can be. And two weeks later, I get told, really sorry. And they showed me the factory. And it was being dismantled. So they weren't lying to me at all. Okay, I can't convince them. I can't believe I didn't convince them. So I said, okay, I'm coming back to talk to you about the little car, and I fly back. Now they have a problem. What do they do with me? I have been very nice. There has been no threatening about anything. They're still nervous. And I, they say, okay, we'll be happy to. We don't think you can sell them in the United States. You know, people are too big in the United States for a small car like that. Bah, bah, bah. They said, yeah, I know. I fit in it. And I was a little bigger before I started shrinking over the years. But I fit really comfortable. I could put a hat on and sit in a super stick. It was really well engineered. Malcolm, you've often said you didn't know anything about the car industry when you brought Subaru over. Right. Can you go into that? I don't understand. How is it that some guy walks in off the street and says, hey, Subaru, that looks like a cute little car. I could sell those and brings them in here with the same alacrity of, say, oh, I don't know, I'm going to import trash cans. I mean, how do you do that? That's a major, major step. Well, here's how. If you saw a little car that you could sit in and be about six foot six in this little egg car, and it was cute as can be, and it had another interior and white wall tires and a radio and tinted glass, and you could buy it for 640 bucks FOB Yokohama. And you know what? I'll bet you I could do something for 30 or $40 a month. I'll bet you I could do something. And they wanted a million and a half dollars because the next year you start meeting the federal regulations. And they ordered to meet them, they, and they never would have met them. But besides that, of course, I'm not giving them money. I had never been in the car business. I don't remember even buying a car. Somebody already leased it for me. He gave it back to him. And so I had the least experience in retail. What I learned was how the world works in the import world. And I was able to get whatever the hell I wanted when I wanted a country or a car that I thought I could do something with. And I learned how to make sure they met all the regulations. To dovetail off of what Don said, he said the Subaru was a small car, it was cute, white wall tires, radio, all this kind of thing. But in 1966, 67, 68, there were a lot of choices there. You had the Fiat 500, the Mini Coopers were out, the Dochevo. Wait, 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 not in 68. In 68, the Honda, no, not the Honda, they came in fourth. The uh, Datsun and the Toyota had had a bad reputation. They came in a couple of years before and the quality was really funny. That's when Japan was known for quality, quality. But the year I brought the Subaru in is the year Japan changed from having, ah, 
to incredible, the highlight of the world on quality. I have to correct, not correct exactly, but add on to something that just annoys me when I read it incorrectly. Everybody goes from, I brought the 360 into the United States. We were selling like crazy and Consumer Report killed us. Oh, it was terrible. It was unsafe because we got here without having to meet the regulations because it was under a thousand pounds. That wasn't my first choice. My first choice was I wished I'd gotten the front wheel drive and then the all wheel drive that they were developing, but they didn't want to give it to me. So they said, okay, finally, and this was to put me off, give us a million and a half dollars and we'll convert it to meet the regulations for 1968. I said, wait, stop. Let me go find out about the regulations and I'll be back. And I fly to Washington. I go to NHTSA. Give me the rules on the regulations that come out next year. They gave me a book about three inches thick. And I started reading the first couple of pages and I put it down and laugh to myself. I don't understand what the heck I'm reading. And I'll never, this is not the way to go. But I go to the first page and it says, these regulations apply to all cars over a thousand pounds. Curb weight. Boom, 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 boom. Back in. Excuse me. What's curb weight? Oh, that's all the fluids in your car when it's sitting at the curb. Your air conditioning fluid and your windshield wiper fluid and your gasoline sitting in. But the brochure says 960. How fast can you change the law? Here's how it works. First, we have to have a lot of complaints. After we have a lot of complaints, then we have to have hearings. After the hearings, if we decide to make a change, it takes two years. I said, what I'm hearing is, no matter what happens, I got two years. No, what you're not hearing is, you probably got, maybe never, will we change it? But at earliest, if everything went really terrible, it's five or six years. No kidding. What do I do? To take that brochure down to the IRS, they'll give you an exemption. So I do, and I now have a paper that says, the Subaru 360 I bring in does not have to meet the regulations. I telex Fuji and said, I'm coming over with one of my team. Now, I had no team, by the way, and I hired a guy that was 55 years old. His job was to be old. Don't open his mouth. Don't say anything. Just be old. <laughs> and we go there. It was snowing in Tokyo, which was a big, rare deal. So now I go there. I had asked for the board to show up. They have the board there. And I said, listen, I want to tell you, thank you all for your incredible hospitality. I know you were just trying to appease me because you didn't know what the liability is. You have no liability. No matter what happens today, you have no liability. You had nothing to do with it. It was a defraud by the bank. And even that didn't actually hurt me and brought me here. So as far as I'm concerned, thank you. It was really a pleasure meeting you. But I didn't tell you one thing, and I tried to not, but I'm going to. In the United States, I'm very powerful politically. And I know you think I'm full of shit because I'm too young for that. So here's the deal I'd like to make. And by the way, I'll give you a thing in writing saying you have no liability to me now or any date from here down. I said, if I have what I just said I have from the United States government, you tell me you'll give me the car because you don't have to meet the regulations. So you don't need the million and a half dollars. They said, absolutely. And I pulled out the paper and Subaru of America was born. And we did all that and met all the regulations in 14 months. And they gave me the little car, figuring I'm not going to sell that many anyhow, and they would make nice. I figured if I bought the 360 and they're going to have to give me the bigger car because I'm setting up Subaru dealers. You can't set up two sets of Subaru dealers. Well, what happened was right in the middle of it all, Consumer Report, in effect, killed us because all the banks read it and they cut off the floor planning. So now I had no car, but I had plenty of cars coming in on letters of credit. One, I had to get rid of them. And two, I needed the bigger car. So I went to Japan and I spent a week with everybody telling me no. And I had a meeting with the chairman of the board as my last resort at dinner. And the next day I was leaving because I didn't know what else to do. They, everybody said no. They were polite. They listened to the story of why and how important it was, but they said no. Are you still involved with Subaru? 
we got a contract. We asked for a perpetual contract because that would get us, when we came back, millions of dollars from an investment banker who said if we came back with a 25-year contract, we would have the money with the contract. So I decided to push it and say, I'm coming back with a perpetual contract. Well, they didn't want to even hear about that. But because I got it with the chairman of the board changing his mind, it appeared as if we had more strength than we had. And so after all sorts of incredible things and negotiations, like, we'll give you $10 and we'll put it in the bank in Tokyo. And I said, we'll all go to jail because you can't do that legally when you're a public company. So I said, that doesn't go to work. Well, how about if we give you the word perpetual, but we, you can't tell anybody. <laughs> I said, we're a public company. Every year, it's going to be on the first paragraph of every financial statement we ever put out. The end of the story is they gave me perpetual, and it was in the front first paragraph of everything that came out financially on the year-end report. So now, 20 years later, not right after the 360 started to fail, 20 years later, Fuji Heavy Industries bought out the stockholders and it became a private company. And what's interesting, in my life, I've been an importer five times. If you put all the other people in the last century and put it together as zero, Hoffman in the late 40s, early 50s, sort of got everybody in Europe and they had all the brands, but he never sold brands, you know, two or three BMWs. And he sold the companies back to the companies because the truth of the matter, major companies in the car business do not want to have another importer. They want to be the importer and they set up distributors. Volkswagen did that, Toyota did that, Subaru did that. And then after everybody's successful, they buy them all back at horribly wonderful prices, as a matter of fact. And two of my Subaru distributors refused to sell Northeast and uh, New England. And they're making so much money, they have to shovel it. Two Toyota distributors also didn't sell, and they were offered billions. And Moran is out there having a good time not doing that. So if the, being a distributor is a big deal. But being an importer sets up the distributors, and that's what I was five times. The least equipped human being on the planet, from a car point of view, to be that was me starting off. And I got all the distributors because I didn't know how or what dealers were the best in the area. And they did. And I made them buy stock, split 10 for one, went to 300. Every car we sold, whether it be a Brooklyn or a Yugo, made money as a dealer. Why Yugo? And the Yugo from Yugoslavia, that was about as bad a factory as you'll imagine in the world with grease about a foot and a half. And the first piece of equipment was a quarter of a million dollars to get a machine to clean the grease off the floor. And everybody's smoking and putting in the cars. And of course, that burns everything in there. Had to get them not to smoke. And they were welding without goggles and burning their eyes out because it was matcha. On top of that, they had 50,000 people in the factory that needed 2,500. Isn't that nice? And 100% of the cars that came off the line did not meet our qualifications. So we had to build a little factory outside the factory where our people did it and then clean the rust off the trucks, the trains that take them, pave the ports at the port, bring in unleaded gas because they didn't have any, and get ships to go to Yugoslavia to pick up cars, car carriers. We did all that. All right. There you go. So as we switch gears, now you're becoming deeper invested into the automotive world, whether you liked it or not, coming from the scooters and through the Subarus and even the Yugos later. How did you get to the point where you were building your own car? Now, remember, as I started bringing in these cars, the thing that put me in the worst jeopardy was Consumer Reports saying it was unsafe. 
So I decided, because I'm reading now automotive news, I'm reading everything I can read about that has anything to do with the world of automobiles, because I am now going to become the expert on the world on how the world works in importing cars, because that's my new business. So if I may not know about how you fix a car, but I sure do know how to bring a car in and meet the regulations and deal with the people over there and get the shipping and make sure everything is there and make sure I have distributors that put money into the company that finances them and get letters of credit that stretch out so I have five or six months to pay for them, even though they're always guaranteed. So I can negotiate with the banks to get lots of them because they're going to have cash for them a whole bunch of time. On and on and on. That I knew better than anybody in the universe. What happened next was unexpected because they wrote this article and all of a sudden floor planning drained up and I was dead. Now that forced me to convince them to give me the bigger car. And once I had the bigger car, now everything started to smooth out. There was no more of this craziness. I found a way with a thing called Fast Track. I built a little track and ripped the cars apart, made them into race cars, racing against the clock. And people went and paid a dollar a ride that took about 35 seconds and they couldn't get enough. And I had them all over the place until I finally got paid for all my things at a dollar a piece all over the country. I then met John DeLorean, who loved the idea, and I said, I'm only in it to get rid of the cars. And he said he and Pinsky would love to do a copy of it, be my guest. They did Malibu Grand Prix. So that got me comfortable and friendly with John DeLorean, who I had great admiration for. So now, by getting the bigger car, all of a sudden, we're in a different position. Now, my executive vice president, Harvey Lamb, who was actually running the company company, one of the best managers in the universe, he came from having a furniture store that his big sale was they financed the hell out of it. That's where he came from. When he would go with me with Japan and tell them how to meet the safety regulations, the guy read up on everything and was all the things I don't want to do, he did fabulously. So it was a good partnership. He was really important. And then he ended up running the company. What was the catalyst that made you say, I want to build my own car? Because I decided I'm going to show them about not safe. I'm going to build the most gorgeous, absolute safest car you can imagine with 10 mile an hour bumpers, no damage to the body. An acrylic body, you could not dent. It would be the same 40 years from the day and it is 50 years from the day, as good as it came off the line. Because it's an eighth infantry of solid paint. You can't dent it, but you can make a hole, but you can put the hole back in and just buff it. It's amazing. The Corvette was the only car at the time made of fiberglass. Did that influence the SV1's design and construction? What was the SV1 designed to compete against? Was it the Corvette? Was it the 911? Who was the intended target, the number one competitor? When I was still in the prototype phase in Livonia, building the car, and Herb Grass ended up taking the original design that I had done for one and made it really cool in hell and did the clay model and all the stuff you do back then. Took care of the 200 engineers we had drawing every day. I get a call from John. He'd already done the Malibu Grand Prix. And he calls me up and he said, hey, next time you come into Detroit, let me pick you up. Okay, great. It was another couple of days and I'm there. And he picks me up in a stretch Chevy. And he says, do you have a problem if I go see what you're doing with the prototype? And he said, not at all. In fact, you'll probably know everybody there. I stole them all from Corvette. Okay, great. <laughs> so we go and he spends about an hour talking to all the guys. He knew all the guys. And it looked like he was in heaven. I mean, he loved watching that. To me, I thought it was interesting, but I just wanted the car. Come on, let's get done. Let's get the car. So afterwards, he says, let's go to lunch. Okay, great. He says, uh, Malcolm, what would you say if I told you I would leave General Motors and go to work for you as your president? I said, John, I'd kiss your ass in Macy's window. I don't know what I'm doing building a car. I would love it to have somebody like you. I mean, you know, that would be the best. You were on Motor Trend Seduced by Speed, a series where you told a story on the DeLorean episode, which fills the gap between the book On a Clear Day, which explains John's departure from GM and when he started the DMC. 
said, well, I leave General Motors is going to lose a million six. I said, so you're saying a million six buys me a quarterback. John, get your lawyer. Come to Philadelphia tomorrow. You're going to meet John Bunning, chairman of the First Pennsylvania Bank. He said, I'll put up some more of my super stock. I'll borrow the million six. He said, you ready to move? I said, well, you want to go slower? We can do a general word style. How about next year you show up and we'll talk about it? He said, okay. He said, you're serious? I said, yeah. So next day he met me in Philadelphia. John Bunning absolutely loved the idea. Malcolm, I love this idea. Disney, oh, God, DeLorean, oh my God, couldn't be better. I said, so I got the money? Yeah. So everybody shakes hands. John says to me, Malcolm, this is less than 24 hours since I talked to you. Yeah, I would like to keep moving fast, John. Only thing you need out of your head is we're not moving at General Motors speed. We're moving at my speed. My speed is you do everything and you get it done and you make decisions and you don't keep on dragging it out. That's all the difference. And you know what to do. So it shouldn't be a problem. No, no, I love it. I love it. He goes home and about eight o'clock that night, I get a call. Malcolm, I turned it out. We still can't get over it. We never heard of something so fast. We're so excited about it. But he sort of told me that I should get the money after taxes. So I thought about it. I said, John, it's a couple hundred thousand more. And to tell you the truth, it shouldn't make any difference at all. I'm still getting you and that's what I'm buying. I got a problem because while I was thinking about it, I was thinking about we're both sort of narcissists. And I think we're going to end up having a fight over whose name goes on the back of the car. And that's not up for negotiation. So I have a feeling we should back off and see wherever it goes. And he agreed on the phone because I think he was getting nervous. I mean, he's lived in a General Motors game and he realizes this is a different game completely. Okay. And he knew it was right. He wanted his name on the back. Let's dig a little bit deeper into your relationship with John DeLorean. How about dinner next time you're here? Absolutely. We sit down. Said, uh, you want to guess what we're going to talk about? I said, there's no guessing. You want to build a car with your name on the back? Yeah. Any suggestions? I said, well, you know them all. You need a paint factory. You can't afford $300 million. So you better find a material that allows you to not need a paint factory. Oh, I'm building out of stainless steel. Wow, you can actually do it? Yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to give you a free piece of marketing. Take it for whatever you want to take it. No matter how good you build anything and whatever color, in this case, stainless steel, once you start building a lot of them, everything loses its pizzazz. And all of a sudden, you can't sell what was the coolest thing in the world. You can't just do the same if you're going for value. Going for no volume, you can get away with it. No, no, stainless steel, we can anodize. You can't anodize because anodize looks like shit for what people want. They want shiny. He said, yeah, you're right. Okay, fine. He said, okay, last thing, can I use your prototype and the film you used to raise some money? Be my guest. We have a gray car that's in some museum I gave it to, that if you put it next to a DeLorean, would almost look exactly, which was my permission. They did whatever he wanted to do, fine. What took me two years and $30 million took him six years and $300 million. And the only difference is I had enough sales for four years from dealers who were getting deposits from people all over the place. And his problem after 5,000 vehicles was sales because they were bored of stainless steel. And he tried to anodize and it looked like shit. That's when he got involved in the stupidity that got him all the publicity, which just ate. I mean, for a man that is as narcissistic as he was, and he, he made me look like a humble person almost. For that to happen to him publicly ripped his insides out. Who designed the SV-1? Herb Grass, what a cool guy he was. Jolly looking guy with a big shaggy beard and his wife was a stripper and he was just as happy as could be. A great couple, really were. 
And I'm looking for designers in Detroit because I've been told that this prototype that I got Bruce Myers to build for me, it looks pretty close to what I want. Not one nut or bolt from that is going to be in the real car. It has nothing to do with being engineered, nothing to do with nothing. It looked like pretty close to what I wanted. So now I had to go find a designer and they tell me about a clay model, one ten thousand of an inch. It takes hundreds of hours. Oh my God. And as soon as they pull the plaster, it's all ruined. So I interviewed a number of designers. Uh, by the way, I work at the office early in the morning, one or two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes I don't go back. I sleep on the floor. Herb Grass, he says to me, because I tell him I hardly sleep. He said, well, you can come visit at two o'clock. You probably get me at the office. So one day at two o'clock, I show up at his office and I walk into his office and there he's sitting with his secretary and she's naked and he's painting her, painting her, not the canvas, painting her. And I go and I see him and I say, you know what? You're just my kind of guy. You're hired. So that was the reason <laughs> I hired her breath. It was the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Let me tell you. He did an incredible job and he did it fast. Remember, from the day I woke up and said I'd do it to the day it came off with the false prototype to begin with, with the clay prototype, with all the tealing that had to be made. And they shrink at different temperatures. Oh, my God. What a thing. But it all got done. I was always curious, SV1, why go wing doors? Oh, <laughs> the whole purpose of building the car was to go wing doors, to show you how great things come from the silliest little things in the world. I had, at the time, three kids, three boys. And on Saturday morning was cartoon time on television. And that was a really wonderful time because I got them. They're almost quiet. You didn't have to break up fights and all the other happy horse shit. So we would always watch cartoons or various shows. And one of the shows that was on Saturday morning, I think it was called 99 A Space Odyssey, something like that. And every week, what would happen is a car would silently pull up and the doors would go, uh, and that was about 15 seconds of the reel every time. And I went, I want to build a car that looks like that. I want the doors to go, uh, <laughs> and that's why I built the car. It was a cartoon. Well, it wasn't exactly. It was an actual human show on the moon. Oh. On the moon. And that car was on the moon. That's awesome. But I looked forward every Saturday to look at the car. It had trapped me. So it was obviously in my destiny. I mean, I didn't think of it that way until one day I said, I got to build a safety car. It's going to look like that. And the doors. That was the reason. I wanted to build those doors, you understand, were the whole purpose of me deciding to build the car. Now we have all the engineers and all these people who are really car guys, and they know they're working for a guy that's an admitted doesn't know cars the way they think I had to know it in order to do it. So they would try to influence me in lots of things. One of them was, forget about the push button going doors. Forget about the window going up and down, because the physics out here and the physics here is way different in the door. Okay. And how much safety? You said it's a safety thing. What if you're upside down? Oh, my God. I said, the glass going to come down. You're going to have a hand grenade pin there, so you can pull it and kick the door out if you're upside down. And you're going to have a latch behind the seat that's going to open up the Think there's three ways to get out of this thing. The window, kick out the door, go behind it. Better than any car you ever had, I said to them. Now, I want a push-button door. I want to be able to push it walking to the car and see the damn thing go up, whether the window's up or down. And they kept telling me, we can't do it. We can't do it. But remember, I'm doing it for the doors, and I'm not getting the doors. That's not going to happen. I pulled everybody together. I said, here's the story. I'm leaving back to Philadelphia. I'll be back next week. If the doors work, great. If not, I'm closing down the deal. We're not building the car. As I'm walking out to the car, one of the kids that works in the place 
comes out and says, Mr. Brooklyn, can I talk to you? Sure. I said, I know how to do the door, but they don't want to do it the way I, I know how to do it. And if they know I'm talking to you, they'll fire me. I said, no, first of all, you're not getting fired. Second of all, tell me what you're talking about. I said, well, just take the hydraulic thing off a convertible and put it on the B-pillar and you've got a hydraulic door and you're going to have the glass go up and back. Nobody gives a damn. The hydraulic will take almost any weight. So I take him and I walk him back in. I said, gentlemen, this young man just told me the following story and I have now given him full charge. I'm coming back next week. If I push a button and the door opens, we stay alive. And if not, we close it down. And if anything happens to the kid, whoever had anything to do with it is out. And I came back a week later and they had it out there. And all I had to do is push the button and it opened up. There was a flaw that I didn't know about until we're now selling the cars. I am in Philadelphia with a Brooklyn in my driveway with the gullwing doors up so I can just sit and look at it. And it starts to rain. So I run out to close the door. Well, the hydraulics, it takes six seconds to close. That means mm -hmm. if I wanted to get in, it would take six seconds to open and six seconds to close in the rain. Ah! I'm dead. I am absolutely dead. What am I going to do? I call my friend Frank Turner, an inventor in Graham, Texas, who is the genius of the world. I said, Frank, I got a problem. I don't know how to solve it. I tell him what it is. He says, I'll be right there. And he flies into Livonia. And he says, I'm taking one of the cars. I'll be back next week. And about five days later, he calls me up. He said, I'll be there in about half a day. I'm already on the way. I said, and? He said, and it's fixed. All right, now we come. Everybody comes out there. And he says, push the button. I push the button. It goes, whoop. Push the button to close. It goes, whoop. Stops six inches above it and closes. Oh, my God. That's perfect. That's absolutely amazingly perfect. And you can put your hand there. Unlike the hydraulic, it doesn't go break your hand off. It's flexible. Oh, my God. What did it do? How much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take the tool? He said, nothing. You don't have to do almost anything. You drain the hydraulic. I put air in it. The engine makes the air. You got a box frame. Air doors. End of story. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. And I loved him. So it begs the question, why did John want gullwing doors? Because it's cool. And I told him, if you build a car and it doesn't have gullwing doors, God bless him. He's going to have to spend a lot of money on advertising. The gullwing doors will sell it. People like the gullwing doors. It makes them feel they're in a really special, rich car. It makes them feel rich. It makes it special. That's why they buy the car. They didn't buy the DeLorean. They didn't buy the Brooklyn for any other reason than they wanted it. Nobody needed either one of them. The 70s were seen as sort of a safety era. There were no convertibles. There were issues with the Pintos blowing up. People were really concerned with safety. You've got Volvo and Saab out there. Mercedes is right there, too. Was the intent to compete with those companies that were already lining themselves with the safety brand? Is that really where the SV1 came from? From the day I woke up and said, I'm going to build it, to the day it came off the line with all the engineers in Livonia, 200 of them, no computers at that time, by the way. I did all of that in two years, met more than all the safety regulations. It was the safest car ever built, the Brooklyn SV1. Ingenious things that nobody ever copied. Nobody wanted to do it because you lose money if you have a bumper 10 miles an hour, no damage. That makes you a lot of money. So that's why the factories didn't jump on the five mile an hour, no damage. It was $1,200 they were going to lose the car every time you bumped up the bank. So they didn't want it. I didn't want to make money that way. I wanted to sell you something cool that my kids would love. What did you envision for the future of the SV1? What was the long-term vision? Were other cars 
the designs in the work? Was there an SV2? Nah, nah. The next car we were going to build was called the chairman's car. I wanted an all-black car, which is a bitch, by the way, because they didn't have acrylic that way. But I was trying to talk them into it with all silver trim. And it was going to sell for $15,000 or something. No big deal. I mean, then it was a big deal. And it was going to be called the chairman's car. Not to sell a whole bunch, you know, maybe... 50 a month. We were trying to get up to a thousand a month with the other thing to meet this four-year supply of orders we have. What was the chairman? Was it a big four-door or what? No, same, the same exact car, just black and silver. It was no big, it was just a, an upgrade of what you had. Sort of like the John Player edition Lotuses, same idea, the black and gold outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the acrylic that was going to win and the silver. Everywhere you had the name, it was silver, everywhere. I mean, silver. So then, you know, every, the problem was everybody was going to steal everything we had. But other than that small little problem, because at this time, you're talking about Henry Ford II, who's at the head of Ford. So did you also cross paths with Lee Iacocca? Oh, Lee Iacocca. I'll tell you that story. Right. You just made my day. <laughs> you got me into good stories. I'm about to build the car. I made a deal with American Motors. It's been engineered with the American Motors for barrel. And we've done the 50,000 mile test, which is a royal fucking pain in the ass. I mean, it is seriously a pain. I get a call. Mr. Brooklyn, we have a problem. The order we gave, the contract we have, they're not going to sell us yet. Uh, are you kidding me? No. And we just got a call from Lindbergh's office. I said, well, call back the office and tell him I want to be in his office tomorrow morning. And I get called. Now the secretary, tell the secretary he would like to see me tomorrow morning or he can read about it in the paper. Okay. I'll be there. Not a hot. So I go there with a couple of my guys and he has a couple of his guys in there. And he said, uh, I'm only seeing you because you made a threat. And I don't like threats. I said, no, you broke a contract. You have a contract with me. And I spent $3 million engineering that car with your engine in there. And you're telling me you're not going to give it to me? I don't think so. It's not the way the world works, Mr. Lunenberg. You throw me out the window. I'm going out hanging on your tie because I'm leaning on your stomach. Because when I walk out of here without an engine, I'm going to Washington to talk about how the big three have decided they didn't want me building a safety car. And let's see how much fun that's going to be by not just honoring your contract. It was pretty vulgar. He said, I want to tell you why you're not getting it. I've worked a long time to sell these cars. And now I can sell every car I build. And every time I give you an engine, it's a car I can't build. Never going to happen. I said, okay. Then when I'm in Washington and you can start reading the papers about how you break contracts and how you're looking to put me out of business because you're in collusion with all the other boys out there that they think you're doing anyhow, then you'll see whether it was worth breaking the contract with me to sell a few cars instead of keeping a word. Okay, I'm going to give you seven engines. Get the hell out of the office. Don't call me again. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry if I was rude, but you had put me in a position where you're putting me out of business. And it was really a little bit, let's say, uncomfortable. So please accept my apology. Get the hell out of here, you little twerp. Okay. Now I'll go back to the office. What am I going to do? I got to replace the engine in something that fits and do a 50,000-mile test again. Oh, boy. So I walk into the office of Livonia, and Keith Crane is sitting there. And another guy that I don't know. Come on back, Keith. He said, listen, Malcolm, I've been asking you to do a story. And not only don't you do a story, but when my photographer tried to sneak into your place, you broke his camera. Yeah, we told everybody, don't go on our property and start trying to sneak in. We're not going to do it. Malcolm, what is wrong with you? It's Subaru, you knew our value. Did you forget? He said, no, I'm just not ready. I don't know who's building it yet. I don't know a whole bunch of stuff. And why would I go premature? I can't do anything with it if a lot of people start calling me up. I'm telling you, you're making a mistake, Malcolm. And by the way, why is Hal Spurlick in your waiting room? I said, who's Hal Spurlick? He said, he's Iacocca's right-hand man. No kidding. He's out there. Keith, 
Tell you what, you got a story. Give me a call next week. I'll give you whatever the hell you want. You can even take pictures. As long as we are a little bit clear about what, where we're at in the game. Thank you so much. And I push him out the door. Hal Sparrow comes in. Hi, Hal. How are you? Uh, why are you here? Uh, Leon Coker sent me. Oh, yeah. How come? He, well, he wants to know what you're doing. Is it okay? Absolutely. You want to go see it? Absolutely. I am so glad you came. Don't you have a 351 Windsor in Canada? Yep. I need more Canadian content. What do you think about selling me about a thousand engines a month? No problem. I'll handle it. Great. I'll take it down and go look at whatever you want to go look at. He does and we get a contract. Fast forward. We've now re-engineered it. Not a lot. It fits pretty good. It's not as good as the American Motor 360. And we did the 50,000 mile test. And now we're getting ready. It's Christmas time. I'm in the LA airport with the kids and my wife. And I get a call from my secretary. Ford is not going to ship us the engines. Oh my God. Here we go again. I call up Henry Ford. He doesn't take my call. I call up Lee Coker. He doesn't take my call. I call Hal Sperlick. He takes my call. Now, I can't believe I'm going to have to tell you this, but I've just been told you're not going to sell me the engines. And I want you to know where I am. I'm in the LA airport. I'm about to get on the plane to fly to Acapulco. If I don't hear back that those engines are coming like we have in the contract, I'm getting on a different plane. I'm going to Washington. And you know where it goes from there. He said, Malcolm, I honestly did not know that they and anybody said that. It had to be our lawyers, and I certainly wasn't. Let me get to the bottom of it. I said, but you got to do it really fast, because I'm not going to Acapulco. So he calls me back. He said, no problem. You got the answers. I said, what happened? Oh, the lawyers came up with the following scenario, which, by the way, is not wrong. And they said, what are we doing? We are selling them a thousand engines. If anything happens, we're liable. For what? We're not making enough money to give a damn. So we're doing something that doesn't do anything that has a liability attached to it. We recommend you don't go forward. He said, we made a deal. You got the deal. Don't worry about it. Thank you very much. And they they honored their deal. (laughs) Now, fast forward. How does the SV1 story end? The deal was real simple. From the premier, who I thought was a great premier, his goal of why he financed the factory, which was an old paint factory they gave us that we had to turn into a real factory. He funded the second part of the money. I put in the money for all the engineering and the prototypes. He put in the money for the factory. And he did it because he wanted publicity for New Brunswick, which nobody ever heard of. And they all considered their fishermen and woodcutters, and they didn't know anything else. And this would put them right out there because this was about as outstanding as anything. And I brought him around with me everywhere, TV shows, talking at Harvard Business School. He was with me and he loved the attention he was getting because it gave him a bigger stage and a bigger voice. And he was a bachelor. So we're now friends. They're putting in money. And one day he comes walking in and says, I need three Bricklands. Okay, what color do you want? He tells me, where do you want them? He tells me, I said, what do you want them for? He said, oh, I'm calling an election. First car is going to pull the crowd. The second car comes in with my mother. The third car comes in with me. The day after the election, front page of the papers is a cartoon character of him flying out of the top of a Brickland with the gold wing doors open and him in a Superman suit. And it says... Premier wins the largest popular vote in the history of New Brunswick elections. He wins the Brooklyn election. And I go, oh, I own this province. (laughs) Not that I was going to do anything different, but I liked it. It sounded like somehow it had worked out to my favor, is what I thought. Well, three months later, Premier comes in to say hello with the, can I see you alone, Malcolm? Yeah. He said, I'm closing it down. 
I said, excuse me, you do understand we got 46,000 backloaders and we got 1,200 people making more money than anybody ever made in the province. We're happy as hell and you're getting all the publicity you ever want. Is that a bad joke? He said, no, let me tell you what's happening. Since the election, you know the one, the Brooklyn election? Well, when I come down every day to talk to the press, there's only two questions they want to hear from. How's Malcolm and how's the car? That's it. They have zero interest in anything else. I sold my political future and voice box because I used the car to win and I won so big. So here's what I'm going to do. I thought about this for a long time and I really hate to do it, but I'm doing it. It's either this or my political career. So I am going to close you. I'm going to get abused, but then I'm going to an election and a year from now, it's going to be my election and I'm going to win. And he did everything you just said. And that was the end of that story. What did you learn from the experience? What could have been done differently? What would you have done differently? What would you, you know, what would you hope from the Canadian government? So we built that car and we did it inexpensively and we had 46,000 back orders, by the way. I learned that I can for $30 million. That was the penalty of ego. It would be the great title of a book, The Penalty of Ego. I like that. Yeah. Oh boy. I bet you that kills a lot of people. So obviously a lot of years passed from when the Brooklyn factory in Canada closed and things like that. So take us on a quick journey between the years 1975 and 2000. What were you up to? Well, let's see. In the end of the 79, I'm at the first automotive news that they had ever was at the Hyatt Hotel across from the Ford headquarters. And Henry Ford was the guest speaker. And the next year I was the speaker. And the next John DeLorean was the speaker. I had my good friend Turner, the inventor, called me up and says, Malcolm, I need your help. Anything you want, Frank. He said, I have built a new kind of engine that is beyond revolutionary. He said, it creates 100 foot towns of torque at 100 RPM and goes up to over 7,500 RPM. I said, well, he said at 500 RPM, I can get 500 horsepower. I got a 500 horsepower, a 200 horsepower, a 20 horsepower engine made on dynos. It'll revolutionize the world. Malcolm, you, I know, don't know shit about an engine. You can take mine apart and put it back together in five minutes with a screwdriver and a pliers. There's only eight moving parts. I said, that sounds great. He said, yeah, but I can't get any publicity or anybody to talk. So I want to make a deal with you. Put your name on the engine with me. Get me publicity. I'll give it 50%. I said, stop. I'm not taking 50%. And I don't want to put my name on something that you created. That does not feel good. Malcolm, we're not going to get any attention any other way. I said, okay, here's the deal. We'll put my name on it. We'll call it the Brooklyn Turner Power Plant. Good enough? Good. I'll get your publicity, but publicity doesn't count unless it turns into something. If it turns into something, I want 10%. You've helped me all along. I want to be able to say I do own a piece of it, so I'm not lying about it. And then I am excited. I'll be that when I come see it. So I fly down, and boy, he puts on the, the most amazing thing you ever saw. A little one about this big as 20 horsepower. Beyond, I didn't know too much about anything, but I, when I saw this, I knew there was he had something fabulous. So I called up Mechanics Illustrated. I told them exactly what the story was. And they came down and looked at it, put it on the title, went nuts, put it on the cover of the magazine. The only thing that they did that was hurtful, I thought, they called it the Brooklyn Power Plant on the cover. They did call it the Brooklyn Turner when they wrote the article. But it did not make me feel good. An incredible op. In fact, the article was basically saying unbelievable, but we saw it all work. So now I got the magazine. I got the guy. I have the film. That's what my talk is about in Automotive News. And I have a deal with Henry that when I'm finished talking, I go over there and say hello for a half hour. I get finished my speak. I take the little engine and my wife at the time, and we go up to the 14th floor to go meet Henry. Now, the 14th floor was Henry's floor. That was him. He had the floor. Five times as wide as a normal hallway, and everything was so quiet. All the people were men, secretaries, 
wearing gray suits and white gloves. And Henry Ford's office was the corner office, and I don't know who the hell were the others, but nobody ever seemed to walk out of it in the hall. So I come there, and we sit and talk, and of course, my lovely wife, he definitely paid a lot of attention to I take the 20 horsepower and I hand it to him. I said, here's the deal. Everything I'm about to tell you is absolute fact. When you read the article, here's the magazine. I'm going to give it to you. You own it for five years. Whatever you get from it, it's yours. But you have to promise you engineer it into a car. With that engine, Henry, you can own the car business. Oh, I couldn't own the car business. Why, Henry? He said, because I don't have enough money. I smile. I said, Henry, you give me your name for a day and a half. I'll get you all the money you want. Ha, ha, ha. I like the deal. Okay, great. What do we do next? I said to him, he said, I'm going to send my head engineer down to Graham, Texas to see it for himself, even though it says it in the magazine. I want him to come back and tell me. Fabulous. We make a date. I fly down to Graham. Head engineer is sitting in their office waiting for me. Comes over to me. Can I talk to you, Mr. Brooklyn? Yeah. He pulls me aside. He says, I'm here to invalidate the program. Whoa. Invalidate the program? And then I got it. It was like, what is wrong with me? I'm asking this man, if it is all the things I say, he has to throw everything he owns away. His engines, his transmissions, his bodies, his tooling, everything, because this makes it all different, smaller, bad, my God, the balance is a whole new guy. He can't do that if he wanted to. They would fire him before they throw everything they own away and then invest it over here. And I went, that's why nobody ever went for the engine. Nobody wants to replace what they got already. It cost too much damn money. And so I said out loud, the next time I have anything to do with an engine, I'm going to put it in my car. Fast forward. Leon Coco retires. He lives in California. I'm living in Malibu. I'm building electric bikes with Dr. Malcolm Curry, who had just retired as chairman of Hughes Aircraft and did the EV1 for General Motors and hated it when they pulled them all back and started crushing them. Let's figure out how to build cars, used cars. We'll put batteries in them. Well, remember, we have lead acid and nickel metal hydride. That's your choice. So we use little batteries that came from computers, but we got it really fine if you like 40 or 50 miles between charges. And one day I'm driving and I realize, oh my God, what happens when all of a sudden I run out of electricity? There is nothing. Nobody gives a damn about electric cars. So I tell Dr. Carr, you know what? We made a mistake. We've been here. So what? Nobody's going to buy it. I can't sell this crap. I won't ride it. So he agrees with me and he says, we sat around. What can we do? That's something in transportation electrically. We came up with and we started the electric bike industry in the United States with a bike called the EV Warrior. If you go to Google, you'll see it. So Lee Coker is now retired. He's living there. He gives me a call. You know, I'm retired, but I hate to be retired. I see you're building electric bikes. Yep. He said, I want to be in that business. I said, I think that's great. I think you're doing great with it. It's an okay business. It doesn't turn me on, by the way. I said to him, what would you like? He said, well, I'd like to know about it. Do you mind? Could I come on over and say hi? Come over. And he has a room. All four wars are filled with the front covers of him being on the front cover. He was on Time Magazine 10,000 times. And knew, I mean, that man really got publicity. So anyhow, we start talking about it. And every day for 30 days, I picked him up. We had breakfast in his house. He had somebody there serving it. And then we'd take him, get my car and show him electric bikes and show him what happens and show him where we're producing it at the Burbank Airport because every, there they were looking to have environmentally clean stuff in their facilities on the airport. Anyhow, so after 30 days, he says to me, okay, you're saying I can use the guy you have in Taiwan to do the bike, yeah? And you can get the batteries from, yeah. So I can actually copy anything I want. Yeah. What do I care? They said, there's a guy who's working for you. Turns out that guy was married to my first wife. Still married to her, by the way. So I hired him because I wanted them to be really happy. He said, can I hire him to be my president? Absolutely. He'd love to be away from me and be his own boss. And he knows everything he has to know. Smart move. 
So they design their bike and they do their bike and it's starting to come in and one of the batteries catches fire and burns out a garage. So it scares them, as it should. And he decides to get out of the bike industry. But here's where it shows how smart this man is. Now, he's read up everything there is about electric and this and that and the government. And the next thing you know, he is buying used golf carts and converting them to electric and giving them away and getting $10,000 from the government. And it cost him about $2,500 to buy and put this crap together. I thought, now there is a smart man. That What a great recovery from a burned down button. <laughs> How cool is that? So Malcolm, as we prepare ourselves for part two of this episode, when we talk more about visionary vehicles, any spoilers, shout outs, promotions, anything else you'd like to share? All right, so you got my good stories. Now I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to leave you with it, and I'll give you a hint. I'm going to be building a four-door of the car I have right now, and it's going to run on a new kind of hydrogen, a liquid hydrogen at room temperature that is combustible but not volatile. We are almost signed with all the paperwork to have it for the United States for vehicles. And I will say no more, and it will revolutionize the world as we know it. Three minutes, you fill it up, and oh, by the way, you'll get 100 to 150 miles to a gallon. Unbelievable, but it all works. And I went looking for it, didn't expect to find that, but I found the most amazing, truly changed our world. It comes from water, nothing's put in it, and it turns into a liquid hydrogen at room temperature. I mean, I have already tested this over thousands of people and about 99.999 said, how do I buy it right now? But it's getting better because what we're about to do, we haven't even told anybody and it will change the world we know. How's that one for a sort of modest exclusive? Yeah. Throughout his career, Malcolm Bricklin has been known for his unconventional ideas and his willingness to take risks. While his ventures have not always been successful, he has remained a respected figure in the automotive industry and a symbol of American entrepreneurship. He has also been the subject of numerous books, documentaries, and articles chronicling his many successes and setbacks in the business world. If you'd like to learn more about Malcolm and keep up with all the progress over at Visionary Vehicles, be sure to log on to www.vvcars.com or follow him on social via LinkedIn or Facebook. Well, Malcolm, I'll say this in closing. I'm really looking forward to part two of this story when we get to dig a little bit deeper into visionary vehicles and kind of expand on what you're doing now. This has been a wonderful walk down. Well, I guess it's a speedy walk down memory lane. Thank you very much for all this insight and information. Go to vvcars.com and see the Brooklyn EV3 and all that stuff. And no, I'm not sure I will open my mouth or not, but I might tell you what we're really going to produce for the world. Not that. After spending six years and millions of dollars, I found something that does not have to worry about electricity being not enough or that we don't have enough chargers by about two million minus. And if you don't own a garage, charge your car, don't ever buy an electric vehicle because you will hate it. We're prepared for We're part prepared. two. We're prepared. Believe me, we've got <laughs> questions. Oh, good, good, good. Guys, it was a pleasure talking to you. All right, very good. Thank you, Malcolm. Bye, thank you. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. 
We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, gummy bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.